Hey there, everybody. It's Chris Bogue. We're about to start another episode. This one is all about improv techniques and how to use them for content creation. I'm super proud of this episode. And if you're a fan of the show, if you could do me a favor, uh, please leave a review for us on whichever platform you use to listen to podcasts. So ideally the Apple Store, it just helps us get in front of more people. I'm very excited to bring you more episodes very soon. And without further ado, please enjoy Improv for Content Creation. Live from Chicago, it's Chris Sells His Soul. I'm your host, Chris Bogue. And this is my show on LinkedIn Live where I have conversations with cool people who will help you work more creatively. Today, my guest is Jared Mason. Jared, please introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, I'm Jared Mason. I'm a writer. I've been a teacher. I do all kinds of stuff. Right now, I'm writing for marketing and communications for Dormer Kramit, an international tool company. But I've known Chris for many, many years through our many experiences with performance and, and all kinds of stuff. So I'm very excited to meet you, Chris. Glad to have you. So Jared is a writer, he is a board game designer, and he's also done a lot of sketch comedy and improv with me. So hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Chris Bogue, and this is my show where we talk about work and the creative process. So if you're joining us here today, please leave a comment. And today we are going to be talking about improv for content creation. So we're going to be talking about our improv background. We're going to talk about some exercises that we use to create original characters and original premises. And we want to answer your questions too. So go ahead. If you have any questions about improv, if you have any observations, if you want to tell us what your favorite improv game is or who your favorite improviser is, go ahead and leave a comment. And Jared, where can the audience find you if they want to connect with you? Do you got a website, LinkedIn, where should they find you? Yeah, the easiest way is just looking at my LinkedIn profile. I've got some links up there where you can find some of my work, my online writing portfolio. My Twitter is on there too. I write haikus all day long. Well, not all day long. I do work. But when I tweet, I do tweet in haikus. So it's kind of fun finding there too. So Excellent. And if you want to find me, my name is Chris Bogues. You can find me at chrisbogues.io or christopherbogues.com. And the easiest way to follow me is to... Ring my bell on LinkedIn. I'm a content creator. I make video content, much of it funny. You can also find me on TikTok at Chris Sells His Soul. So let's get this started. So I see a lot of great interaction in the audience here. We got Simon, we got Dina, we got Jesse, Danny, Kimberly, Daniel, Eva, Pamela. This is so amazing to see the crowd response here. Leave any questions you have, anything you want to learn about improv, any subjects in improv you want us to talk about. And Jared and I are going to talk a little bit about the types of improv we've done together. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the shows that he did over at the Second City with me. And before we get deep into that, Jared, why don't we just start by bare bones. What is improv? Yeah. To summarize it. Yeah, so improv is a really fascinating performance art where the people who are performing it are doing all of the creation in the moment 
And so one of the, if you want to get really philosophical about it, and sometimes I do when I, when I coach or teach improv, you know, if you think about going to a stage production play, someone's writing it, someone's directing it, someone's costuming it. In improv, the performers are doing all of that. They step out onto this empty space and they create everything that the audience is experiencing. The words, the space of the space, you know, what, what's there and what's not. And they're doing that simply through their actions and words. If you want to get real woo-woo about it, it's the closest thing to being gods as you can, as you can do. <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't expect you to come out and say, basically become a god. But yeah, there's this concept in improv that I talk about all the time, if anybody's ever watched my stuff, and it's the concept of yes and. Jared, how would you define yes and? So yes and is a, it's a tool. It's, it's like the most basic thing you can do in an improv scene. When you go out on stage and you or your scene partner says something, whatever that is, or does something, you to yes and it is to accept what they've done and then build onto it and add something to it. So whether that's an action or a response or a phrase that they say, you're accepting that as yes, that is what exists in this world and this is something that I'm adding to it. It's not yes, but it's not no, although it's yes mm -hmm. and you have to say yes and you have to push the relationship forward. Mm -hmm. And Timothy, Ozzy, Mark, I'm seeing everybody jump in here. Timothy pointed out some of his favorite mainstream improv artists, Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery and Wayne Brady. I'm glad you brought up Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery because they studied together at Second City Toronto, which Jared and I did our shows at Second City Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is the same philosophy. And one thing that you'll notice about a lot of the great comedians is they travel in packs. There's a reason why Colin Mockery and Ryan Stiles, every time they go on stage, it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. is because they've been doing this together for so long. And you see it all the time. Upright Citizens Brigade, Stella... The state, Stephen Colbert, the, the folks that made Strangers with Candy, those teams learn with each other and kind of grow up together. Yeah. So one thing I want you to be thinking about if you're listening to this conversation and trying to find ways that improv is going to help you, it's a lot better if you're doing it with other people. And this concept of yes and means you owe something to your partner. I see Wayne Brady there. Wayne Brady is another one. That dude... He doesn't even need to rhyme. Wayne Brady's specialty is his songs. He's a very talented singer. He's very good at musical improv. Even if he misses a rhyme, he doesn't address it, you know, and he conducts himself with such confidence. And you could imagine anybody in the audience who's never done improv before, if you're on stage with Wayne Brady, he's going to make sure you look good. And this mm -hmm. is the secret rule that everybody in improv is following is it's not about you. It's about trying to find ways to make the other person look good. You do that through yes anding, yeah. right? You accept what they take as a gift. Anything that they do or say is perfect. Like that is exactly what we needed right now. You honor that and then you build on it. And that continues that exchange of support. Yeah. And so here's something tricky that I've been trying to explain to my audience, Jared. Mm -hmm. I'm on LinkedIn. 
And we like to gently uh, shit on things here on LinkedIn because there's a lot of bridge <laughs> content mm-hmm. and it's very easy to make fun of things. And what my audience is learning is that improv is not about making fun of things. It's not about telling jokes either. Right. So what the hell is going on there and how does it still manage to be funny if you're not putting people down and you're not telling jokes and you have to say yes to everything the other person on stage says, whether it's good or bad? Yeah, it's not about spoofing things. The trend in comedy from... When we were coming up, ironic detachment was like the thing in comedy and stand up and sketch and all these things. But improv doesn't work with that ironic detachment because as soon as you detach from that existence in the scene, you cheapen it. You're not honoring that thing that the person on stage is giving you. You are, you know, you're kicking some dirt onto it, right? So what's going on when you are yes anding and building those scenes together? It's not about making fun of or making jokes or saying the funniest thing. You're being authentic to the scene and to the character that you're playing. And in that authenticity, the audience finds connections to those characters and situations. And that is what's funny. Being able to see like sitcoms have these manufactured situations. Oh, the boss is oh, oh, coming over for dinner tonight and we don't have any food to make, right? Like that that's very manufactured. But I imagine at some point that actually happened and there are those situations where it's like, oh yeah, if you're in a situation with your boss and there's a little bit of that like, I don't know how to respond. Do I be totally authentic and like, you know, say like a swear or like say, yeah, well, you know, nice tie. Or am I still kissing at like that uncertainty is what the audience can connect with. That authenticity is what audience connects with. And that's what's fun. Uh, The audience has to see themselves in you. So I'm going to use an example. So one of the shows that I wrote and produced at Second City was called America 3.0. And Jared was cast as the president. And a little background for my audience here. The premise of the show was that it took place in the year 2032 and the United States had been through a few civil wars and we had completely rewritten our constitution and our system of government. So now there was like, instead of two political parties, there was hundreds of political parties and the country had a new president every month. We were kind of world building originally. I co-wrote it with my writing partner at the time, Matt Tins Herzog. We were trying to come up with this concept of the world of like, what would happen if we if we just solved all the problems that our country's dealing with right now? What new stupid problems would we have? And we realized if you had a new president every month, then that would mean that they would be beholden to even smaller fringes of these smaller political parties, which means they would have to take crazier positions. So I wrote a sketch where Jared, who was the head of the Bull Moose Party, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt's party, which had resurfaced, accidentally promised the country that he would beat a panda to death with a hammer on live television. And the humor came from Jared is a very genuine guy. He's got daughters. He's very sweet to his family. He's an animal lover. So creating this situation where he had to muster the courage to do this horrific thing, I didn't need to do much as a director other than put him out there and try to get him to experience the actual feelings that come with that, that feeling of guilt, 
that feeling of uncertainty, that feeling of why the hell did I do this? That's what the audience is laughing at. They're not laughing at the panda being beaten to death. They're, they're laughing at how realistically you approached being tasked to do something like the audience watches it and they're like, oh my God, that's what I would be doing. I wouldn't want to kill the panda, you know? And, and of course, there was all this bluster. There was the, the political speeches, the promises made, like, I have these plans, and if elected, I promise to do this thing. And it's such a wild, off-the-wall thing that nobody wants to do, I imagine, I would hope. The scene partner playing my wife was Juliana Brecker, and she was like, why? Why do you have to do it? And it's like, because I made a promise. I promised to do this thing, and so I have to make good on that promise. Everyone can relate to that, right? Oh, so I got a great question here in the audience. I had a user just ask, how do you take an esoteric topic uh, you navigate from experience and turn it into something that's relevant to almost all audiences? And the example they gave is Key and Peel. Key and Peel were also trained at Second City and they do the exact same thing, which is they are tapping into their real experiences they're tapping into the ways that they really feel, the ways that they really interact with their friends. And what they teach you to do at Second City is you are playing a version of you that is 99% the same, but you're taking one flaw and exaggerating it to comic proportions. Key and Peele really had a lot to say because they kind of lived in this in-between world where they were black, but they were also other ethnicities and they felt like they were never like, they identified with being black, but they also identified with these other experiences. And all they had to do was explore what that actually feels like. And as soon as you find something fun, you just go on that. So, Jared, can you tell us a little bit about the game of the scene? Because this is what improv is all about. You don't tell jokes, you play games. Right. Can you give the audience a little example of like what a game in a scene might be like? Yeah, I think this, this comment points it out specifically. It's about how we one-up our friends. So um, in an improv scene, you have to establish the reality through yes-anding each other. You're giving gifts, you're accepting those gifts, you're building off of each other to find out what's going on in the scene. As soon as something odd happens that, that makes you take pause and be like, oh, that's an interesting pattern, you build the game off of that. An even simpler one, an even simpler Key and Peel sketch, when they do the college football, and it's just the names of the players. Mm -hmm. they've done a few of them and you know they could just sit there and do that for hours mm. it does not matter what the other one says as soon as they say a name he's gonna come up and go far trail jones because they've watched so much of that they've internalized those kinds of names if the two of them go out there on stage they can just do it until it runs out of steam but when you're playing a game like that especially in the moment not every game move you make is going to be this huge laugh, but it doesn't matter because as soon as you get that huge laugh, you end the scene and then you start a new scene. And you can always jump back to those games. And for my audience, if anybody watches my content, another example of a game is Vagman. Mm -hmm. I have this character, Vagman, and the joke is he's never specific. And if I brought Jared in to play Vagman's father... The joke would be, can we have a realistic father-son scene without saying anything specific to each other? <laughs> right, right. And then you realize, as long as you keep it vague, you can tap into all these real emotions. You can ask, what do I love about my dad? 
you know, what is my dad like? What types of things do we actually connect with? Mm-hmm. And the joke is, can you keep playing the game, but answering as yourself as an honest person? It's walking that line, and that that's what improv is is all about. I'm very curious. I want to get deep with you, Jared, on some specific exercises that we do to mm-hmm. create characters and create points of view. I know the audience is very interested in learning about improv for content creation, too. But first, I think it's time for Gimme Gimme. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So if anybody doesn't know, this is a segment that I do in the middle of the show because I think sometimes people forget what the purpose of LinkedIn actually is. It's not selfies. It's not inspirational stories. It's to make money. So... What we like to do is at around the halfway point of the show, my guest and I pop in the character and we ask the audience for exactly what we want. So, Jared, you ready? Indubitably. Let's do it. Hello. Welcome to Gimme Gimme. Jared, welcome to the show. What do you got? Well, as a very serious writer, of course, you can find my writings in a number of places. I have a WordPress on my LinkedIn, but the one that I really want you to go to and find is where I have my games available. If you go to https colon slash slash jthewolfmanm.itch.io, you will find a, a small collection of games that I've created. And the one that I really beseech you to download is called Autumn Bell. It's a a solo game. You play it on your own with a deck of cards and a journal, and you are writing the story of of being a teacher at a school for wizards. Now, the best part about this game is it's free, totally free. All of the money that I do get for it through donations for this year, from April of this year to April of next year, I've pledged to the Trevor Project. Because, quite frankly, J.K. Rowling is awful. She's a turf. She's a trans-exclusive radical feminism, and, and we don't stand for that. And I say trans rights. I say it loud. I say it proud. And I say, let's donate some money to the Trevor Project to help folks who may need a little extra help. So, wizard school, yes. That other wizard school, no. Download and donate. Thank you. Great. And we'll be including that in the show notes so you can get to Jared's games. But now it's my turn. Boss Bogue here. I know what you're saying. Hey, Boss Bogue hasn't asked us for money since April. Don't get used to that, folks, because Chris Bogue just dropped his new course. That's right. If you go to chrisbogue.io, you can finally purchase the complete guide to selling on video. I've watched the videos that your sales teams make, so trust me, you could use this guide. This is everything you need to build and send delightful 30-second videos that are going to drive business to your pipeline. And guess what? It's fucking funny, too. And I've seen the shit you post on LinkedIn. It's cringy, it's no fun, and you should be out there doing it at a high level, doing it in a way that's not going to take up a bunch of your time, and most importantly, doing it in a way that's going to make me money. Because that's what this is here for. I'm here to get money from you. This is not PBS. Pay for my course. You can find it at chrisbogue.io. You can also find it in the link in my profile. And because I just launched this baby, you can get in on the special introductory pricing. So when you go to the shopping cart, you can put in promo code gimme gimme, 
to receive $50 off the course. This is my magnum opus. This is my baby. This is everything you need to know to start getting involved in video. This is 43 videos long, all super short, super intentional, with comedy. Give me it. Jared, you got anything else? No. Do, do what the man says, damn it. This has been Gimme Gimme. Thank you very much. So Improv has been been such a huge part of what I do. And I think the audience needs to realize, too, that I get lazy. And <laughs> any writer deals with this, you know? And whether you're a, a creator on LinkedIn or you're a creator on TikTok, creating content every single day is exhausting if you don't have a process. And part of the reason why I'm able to to do as much content as I do is I will create these moments where I have to be filming and I've got a couple prompts and I'm just going. And again, the nice thing about improv is you're not editing, you're not critiquing, you're just creating a situation where you have to do something, tap into a real emotion, try to find a game, try to find something that's compelling and um, just see where it takes you. So Jared, I'm going to start with an idea generator that's super simple. And I want you to tell me about how you've used this in improv and how it's helped you. Let's talk about the power of short, truthful monologues as an idea generator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the first idea generators that we really learned at Improv Mafia, especially with our long form practices on Saturdays. So for those of you who don't know, long form and short form improv are both improv, but short form improv is like, whose line is it anyway? You have these games that are prescripted games that are like, okay, in this game, they're going to be using these props. Or in this game, you know, each line starts with the next letter of the alphabet, right? And those are all games that you could conceivably do in a long form scene as the game of the scene. But in long form, there's usually a structure of how the scenes are going to play out. And so the monologues were always great as an idea generator because you're doing a little bit of word association based off of what someone else has given you or what the person before you has said, but you're also just sharing something that's real and that's honest and authentic about you and an experience that you had. And when you do that, when you have that authenticity and vulnerability, it gives everyone on stage with you permission to do that as well. And it, gives the audience something to connect with. So usually this starts with just one word. How If you're doing a long-form improv set, or you're going to go for 20 or 30 minutes, and you start by going to the audience and you just say, hey, we just need a word to get started. So whatever the audience tells you, you just go with it. You don't fish around for a word. And then maybe they say fish. Great. So then you start and you say, one thing I used to do, I used to go fishing with my dad, and I loved it. But we sucked at it. We never caught anything. And then what happens is you've got a group of people there. So someone else can take off from the word. So they use the word caught. And they step forward and say, one time I got caught shoplifting. I was 13 years old. I was in the mall. I was in a CD store. I worked at Spencer's Gifts. And we had people coming in to buy all kinds of things. You build off of each other's monologues. Like- right. And the idea is you put these monologues out there. And now whenever you start a scene, you've got places you've got emotions you've got action relationship right right so you can start a scene you know just like opening your jacket like looking around and like grabbing something off the shelf and then that next person comes in they walk up to you 
And maybe Jared can be another person who's shoplifting with me. Maybe we're a team together. Maybe he's going to come up as the security guard and he's going to catch me and bring me into the interrogation room. Maybe he's going to come in as my mom who caught me. Like, it does not matter what he does. What matters is once he sees that I am shoplifting and we are in the mall together, he's not allowed to change that reality. It's like, this is the rules now. We are here. But again, tapping into those feelings of embarrassment, tapping into those real things that happen to you. And this is why we keep coming back to tell the 100% truth. Don't exaggerate it. Mm -hmm. uh, because there's all these gifts in these experiences you've had. And every fact you know, every story you've ever told, every experience you've ever had is a gift that can come out strategically in improv. If you know what it feels like to be detained for shoplifting, that's real. Tell the audience about that. And this is the same kind of storytelling that I bring to LinkedIn. And this is why I have a style where I make my content based off things other people are saying. The idea is like, you don't want to have to invent things on right. stage. Well, and, and I mean, I know Chris and I, you, you and I have talked a lot about your days in sales when you were working with those professors and you were able to talk to them about what they're interested in because like, that's the secret. Everybody's interested in something. And so if you can find something that they're interested in, or if you can mention something that you're interested in, then it makes it easier to have that conversation and connect. And in an improv scene, everything that is said is a gift. And the way that it's said or the way that it's done is a gift. And you can focus on any one of those three things, what is said, how it's said, you know, or by whom or whatever, or why. But as long as you're taking that and and then adding to it, then that's basically all you're going to do. And then, you know, your characters, you talk about wearing your characters like a thin veil, right? It's you, but it's like an aspect of you. So here's another exercise that we used to do. There's two games I want to talk about. LaRonde, and I want mm -hmm. to talk about the newscaster. One thing that I really preach as a comedy writer is you need to think about status. There are high status characters and there are low status characters. Actually, Jared, do you want to tell them about card status? Oh, yeah. I card love status. Like so card status was an exercise that we did. I don't know if we ever did it in shows or anything, but it was a great exercise, especially for younger improvisers, where you take a deck of cards, shuffle it up, and each improviser draws a card in secret. And whatever number that they have on that card determines the status that they give themselves in that scene. So a three, four status is going to be a low status character. A 10, you know, nine, 10 is going to be kind of in the middle. And if you get a queen, king, or ace, you're the very highest status. The way that you come into that scene and treat those other people, you're at the very top. When we say high status and low status, some examples of what makes a high status character... High status characters are very confident. High status characters speak deliberately. High status characters, yeah, they're high status characters do not move around a lot. People move to them. Think of someone like Darth Vader or Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada or, you know, it's these powerful figures. And then a low status character constantly apologizes. Uh, they're nervous. They do a lot of moving around a lot. They're always trying to impress other people. So yeah, in sales, you should think about like when you pick up that phone and you call that CEO, what level are you coming in at? Are you coming in as a two? Are you coming in as a low level person who's undeserving as their, of their time? And the irony about status is it's not always good to come in there as an ace 
if you're trying to sell to someone who's a six or a seven, mm-hmm. sometimes you got to go in there and be a little bit more self-deprecating. And we would have this game that we would play called Laronde. It's an idea generator. And the idea behind a Laronde is it's it means a round. It's a scene in the round. So all the players have a number, right? So there's person A and person B, right? So how it works, person A and person B do a scene together and say, it's me and Jared, right? So maybe I'm a high status character and Jared is a low status character, right? So I'm the boss. I'm like, rawr, rawr, you suck. I'm chewing him out, making him feel bad. What happens is somebody's going to tag one of us out. So if they tag Jared out, their job is to come in as a character that's going to be higher status than me. They're going to flip that status around. Maybe now you go home and you get to see my wife and maybe she actually runs the show. But she's much more confident than me. I'm much more groveling and apologetic when with my wife. Or you could tag me out of the scene and it's like Jared was playing a low status character. Maybe person D is going to come in and put him in a situation where he's high status. Maybe he's at the Doctor Who convention or something and he's like the coolest person there. And he's the most confident guy at the nerd convention. And this is something I, I really always think about. You'll notice with Vagman, with the boss, with any of the characters that I'm doing, I try to sometimes do sketches where they're not the person who's in control. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of two-dimensional characters on LinkedIn. And you can't really understand a character on a human level until you can both play them in a position of high status and a position of low status. What does it look like when they have all the power and what does it look like when they're powerless? Yeah. And really what we're doing is you recontextualize. You're taking something and you're putting it into a new context. And I think that is where so much of just any comedy comes from. If you take if you take Darth Vader out of the context of being the Imperial commander and, oh, now he's you know, like dad to little Luke Skywalker and little Princess Leia. You know, there's that, that the book. It's like Vader's little princess. That's funny because, oh, there's Princess Leia cutting hearts out of his cape like a little kid would do to a dad's necktie or something. And anytime that you can recontextualize, it makes it more fun. However, like you said, you can't do that with a two-dimensional character because once you take them out of that context, their whole world dissolves because they don't have that. They don't have any mass to transfer into a different dimension. Here's a great context one that I loved. So this was a scene at Second City. The original scene was just two guys talking about their favorite Disney movie. It was two people like arguing over which Disney princess they liked the best. Mm-hmm. And what the director did was he just changed the characters so it was Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. <laughs> exact same scene, exact same dialogue, <laughs> but they just tried to play Putin and Kim Jong-un as 100% honestly as they could talking about like was Ariel the best Disney princess or not and again the writers of the scene tried to make actual arguments for which princess they objectively think is the best mm-hmm. and normally that wouldn't be funny but all you do is you switch that context and now it's funny so mm-hmm. I want to ask you about newscaster yeah newscaster was a game they play on whose line is it anyway? We would do it when we were learning improv. Newscaster is a game where one person is playing a journalist and they're on the scene. You get a suggestion for some sort of crisis that's happening. And then it's a character building exercise where somebody comes in as three different characters. If I was the reporter, I'd be like, oh, we have a crisis. 
you know, all the cats, they're all covered in spikes now. Um, so I'm here interviewing people on the scene. Uh, excuse me, what is your name? And what's going to happen is you, you, they, he would come in as a different person and like, I don't know, pick a perspective. My name is Dr. Thaddeus Grunt. I'm a veterinarian. Yeah. Doctor, what can you tell us about the health of these cats? Apparently, all their vital signs are perfectly healthy. They're aging just as, as you would expect a normal house cat to age. They just happen to be covered in six-inch metal spikes. It does make it a little bit more difficult to administer tests and to pet them, but they don't seem to be upset or, or perturbed by it at all. Yeah. So, so you wrap up the interview... And you come in as a completely different. The goal is, can you play three different points of view? So if you play a, a veterinarian with a very clinical point of view, maybe then you come in as an exasperated dad. Like, Look, I was telling my kid I'm going to buy him a cat, and I told him, hold off, because now he's covered in metal spikes, which I guess are poisonous, and if they're in heat, they shoot at you. Like, I don't know, but my kid won't stop bugging me because he wants the damn death cat. And I don't think he's old enough for that yet. And the goal and is... <laughs> you can come in. I'm Jim Davis, creator of Garfield. Man, I got my work cut out for me. I got to go back and redo all of those comics so that they're historically accurate. But there's one thing that people know about Jim Davis. It's historical accuracy. Yeah, and again, it does not matter... Who you come in with, it does not matter what perspective you come in, but you want to commit to it. You got to commit. You got to say, okay, what does my character want out of this scene? What's their actual feelings about this? And then again, it's like, well, how would I feel? Maybe you're a kid who's disappointed. Because you're like, I don't see what the big deal is. I want to pet the spiky cat. I don't like my teachers. I wish I was covered in spikes. And that's the thing, when you, whenever I coach improv, especially for younger kids or teenagers, when they feel like they're stuck, they don't know what to say, they get frozen, I always tell them like, look, just take a deep breath. You don't have to say something right away. Let that line that you just heard kind of ruminate. And then if you're really stuck, just say how your character feels about that character or what they just said. Just you know, be honest, just like, oh, well... I mean, that upsets me. You don't want me to have this cat with the metal spikes? Chris, come on. Yeah. Grow <laughs> man. So I had an improv teacher teach me once, and this is another content thing I teach people, is no matter what the decision is, you can lean into it or you can lean away from it. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone comes up and starts touching your face and being like, oh, I like what's going on with your beard. It looks so rugged. You can lean into it. You could be like, I spend two hours a day getting this just right. So... I appreciate that, but I'm going to beard it up over here now. Either one of those decisions is Like, there are no wrong answers here. Remember, you're making it up in the scene. Mm -hmm. But I find the biggest problem that improvisers get into is the same problem that sellers and marketers get into, where they're not specific. And if you arm yourself with a really specific point of view, or we used to do a lot of mime work. <laughs> That's something, too, where it's like, We'd start connecting things. We actually have, this is a, actually a great exercise I think the audience can use too. We would play a game called Conversation into a Scene. We would all pair off in twos and whoever was running it would be like, okay, pick a movie to talk about. And you'd go off and you'd start having a conversation, just the two of you. And then he'd grab you and say, okay, stop, you two. You're both firefighters. Continue the scene. 
and you want to continue that conversation about movies, but now you're suiting up. Maybe you're putting on your suit, you're cranking up your hose, you're loading up your axe, you're doing all these things that are going to make the scene. And it does two things. One, it pushes you to have just real honest conversation. You don't want to be jokey or artificial when you're having a conversation. And then two, it gives you something to, again, recontextualize that conversation. But now you've got these things that you're doing that you can use to give you some context or, or a lens through which to have that conversation. It can yeah. inform the conversation and your conversation can inform the activity. Yeah, let's dig into a little bit about why it's better to be authentic than to tell jokes. Because, again, this is a counterintuitive thing. When people think about comedy, they think about jokes. But the reality is, if you go up to somebody and you tell them, I'm going to tell you the funniest joke you ever heard, there's a part of them that doesn't want to laugh at it. And if you've ever talked to somebody who tells the same old tired joke over and over again... It's like when there's an expectation that like they think you're going to laugh, there's this urge to not laugh. Whereas people will tell you all the time, hey, I'm not funny, but I'm hilarious when I'm around my friends and family. And the truth is that's actually just the funniest version of you. Everybody is funniest when they're just around their friends and family. You do things that you don't intend to be funny, but that are actually funny and it's only if you surrender to complete honesty that you could have these real moments that people are going to laugh at because they identify with that. Yeah, you mentioned that. I have two kids, two young kids, and anyone who has kids, work with kids, is around kids, knows that they're really good at sniffing out BS, right? They're really good at knowing if you are, if you're being honest or not. And I think, by and large, a lot of people have that but we've learned to turn down that little radar and just accept like, well, yeah, they're bullshitting, but like, whatever, that's just who they are, right? But little kids, especially, you got to be honest with them. You got to be real with them because if you're faking it, they'll know. And that's the same thing is if you're creating content, if you're going into a situation, a sales situation, whatever, where, where you have this pretense, it's not nearly as effective. And anyone who is going to pick up on the fact that that's BS is going to be like, I'm not going to trust you. You've cheapen the whole experience, the, this whole interaction. Audiences are trying to determine if a person is trustworthy and they're never going to open up to you unless they like you. And when you try to be everything to everybody, when you try to only say the things that other per people want to hear, mm -hmm. it's like you're concealing something from them. So we say if you're doing a monologue, for an improv scene and your suggestion is football and you don't actually like football, don't pretend like you like football just because you assume the audience does. If you go out there and you're like, I don't know, I don't really like football. I think the commercials are off-putting and nothing ever happens. And if you actually try to figure out what your, what your feelings are, later on in the show when you have a football scene, and you go out there as the football coach who doesn't really like football. That's just going to be funny because you're in a situation where it's this high stakes game and you're like, I don't fucking know. I can't even. That country song was dumb. And just go run the ball and see what happens, you know? And right. You're playing into your real emotions. But the audience can see that's what you actually think, you know? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about anything but the bomb. Sure. 
So this was one of my favorite exercises. Do you want to explain anything but the bomb to sure? Yeah. So the way that anything but the bomb works is it's a two person scene, and the two of you have to be defusing a bomb. However, you can never talk about what you are doing in the scene. You can never talk about the bomb or defusing the bomb. Or that you're bomb diffuser. You can't mention or that you're occupation either. Right, right. And so the conversation in the scene is all about how you feel to each other and how you react to each other. And usually what we always did was as the scene built and as the scene was reaching that climax, the other improvisers would be making sounds or something to up the tension to let them know, like, yes, you, we feel that tension that the two of you are exploring. The clock is ticking down on that bomb and you're getting real close to it going off. And then it's like, oh, but we have this conversation. We have this relationship that then that's what the tension is actually being built from. Yeah. Um, your bomb diffusers, there's a very high stakes bomb ticking and going off that your fellow improvisers are making the sound effects for. And you're not allowed to talk about the bomb. And you're not allowed to talk about being bomb diffusers. So what do you talk about? Literally anything else. And in a business context, like I have people all the time who they tell me they can't talk about real stuff. They can't build rapport. They can't make funny content because they sell to quote unquote serious people. And it's like, hey, that person works at a financial tech company Fintech is not the only thing they talk about all day. Even when they're in a meeting and it's high stakes, they're talking about other things. They're talking about what's on the menu. They're talking about, I picked up the tab last time. You know, do you want to pick it up the deck? All these little human interactions there. And at first, yes and feels very limiting, you know? But once you realize, it's like, oh, no, all you have to do is agree to the premise. And then, yeah, sky's the limit. You can do literally anything. Mm. Well, a, a quick note, too, because I think a lot of people hear yes and, and they think you literally have to say the words yes and. And to go back to your comment about leaning in or leaning out, right? So even if you lean out, if someone comes up to you and is like touching your beard or whatever, you don't have to, as in your character, say, yes, grab my beard, because you can still lean out of that situation, right? You're still saying yes, because they're talking about how beautiful your beard is and you're not saying something like, what are you talking about? I just shaved yesterday. I'm totally clean shaven, right? Yeah. You're accepting the fact that, yeah, I have a beard and I don't want you to touch my beard. That's still ending, right? Yeah. Uh, or there's a great example, I believe either in the book Truth and Comedy by Del Close and Sharna Halpern, or maybe it's an improvised by McNapier, but they give an example of how you can say yes by saying no. Mm -hmm. And it was like a guy playing a dad. So he had his pipe and he's sitting there and he's reading his paper and someone is playing his son in the next room. And he's pantomiming that he's locked up and he goes, father, I'm starving. Feed me. Please feed me. No, he was crawling. He goes, father, I'm starving. Please feed me. And dad goes, no, get back into your cage. <laughs> and then he goes back to reading his paper on the surface. That feels like denial but he actually just said he validated that his fellow partner made the choice oh no this is my abusive tyrannical father he's keeping me in a dungeon that's what you're agreeing to it's like no we're not going to get along i don't like my son or at least i'm trying to make my son's life a living hell 
Yeah. Now the game is like, what kind of an uncaring, sadistic father can you be? And the more the son is just hurt and bewildered, mm -hmm. the funnier that's going to be for the audience because that's real, you know? And if, if you were trying to be blasé about it, it wouldn't hit as hard. Right. If that's true, then what else is true? Oh, if father hasn't fed me, he keeps me in this dungeon. What else is true, right? And that's just the game. The example that they use in the Upright Citizens Brigade manual of improv comedy is if someone starts on the ledge and they're like, I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump. You want to play to the top of your talent and say, no, don't jump. Like, you got so much to live for, right? Because that's what you would do in that situation. If you just say, yeah, go ahead. That's the end of the scene. That scene's over now. Yeah, and the, and the cruelty, that that's a thing too. And we were talking earlier about how some people think improv is just making fun of stuff. That's a trap that beginner improvisers will fall in. They'll just try to get the best of somebody else in there and be like, good, jump. I don't care because that's unexpected. Mm -hmm. But what you actually learn with Yes And is you can actually cut deeper by being on their side. Mm -hmm. Be like, don't jump. You've got so much to live for. Who's going to open the shift at Burger King tomorrow? And then the joke of the scene is trying to inspire him to live with the based on the saddest realizations about his life. But at the same time, the game is how pathetic can we make this guy's life? But at the same time, the characters are really honestly like caring for each other, right? They're really, truly trying their hardest to be like, no, man, this is you're the best. And it's like that, that honesty, that, that care for one another, right? It's like watching SpongeBob. Yeah, he's a goofball and he's super silly and everything, but the comedy so often more more often comes from those interactions that he has with the other characters rather than just how silly can this character be i want to hit on one last note that you mentioned earlier because mm -hmm. this is so important to the way i write comedy this is so important by the way you and i were trained to make comedy it's this idea of playing to the top of your intelligence mm -hmm. so we were talking earlier if you have to play a child in a scene don't pretend to be stupid that's actually really annoying for an audience when you're up there trying to be like a duh, duh, idiot. We find even if you're going to be a duh, duh, idiot, make them smarter than the average idiot. Be right. like, duh, I had some questions about box cello suite, in particular movement four. And it's like, you, you can, if you infuse them with more intelligence, can you talk about playing the top of your intelligence? Because so, yeah. And I think another part of it is the top of your emotional intelligence too, right? Like having those reactions where even as a child, like the secret about kids is that they have all the emotions that any one of us has, right? As humans, every human has all the emotions that you can have, but they just don't have all the words to explain or to reflect on those. And I mean, hell, I know plenty of adults who don't have those words or have that that self-reflection skill. So it's playing to the top of your intelligence. Everything that you know is something that your character could know. And any way that you would react to a situation is how your character could react to a situation. Yeah, the example I'll give, I make a lot of TikTok content. I make a lot of business content. I think the reason why people will say, some of my stuff, they'll be like, dude, that Fagman sketch kind of killed me inside. <laughs> that was kind of brutal. But it's because if I'm writing a scene between a boss and a sales rep who is making cold calls, you know, there's a temptation to be like, oh, I'm a boss, so I'm gonna make the boss really smart, and I'm gonna make the cold caller really stupid. Or if you're trying to standardize bosses, you're gonna go, oh, you know what, I'm gonna play the cold caller character who's gonna be really smart, 
but his stupid boss is going to be just making stupid moves that ruin him. It's a lot more interesting when both of those characters are smart mm-hmm. and they are just driven by opposite forces and they are trying to do it as intelligently as possible. And I have found that if you really lean into that, if you say, I'm going to play the smartest character I can, I'm going to play from my honest perspective, and I'm going to try to find what's real about my position and just what's funny about it and exaggerate. Yeah, I will have scenes that cut really deep both ways. They condemn the boss class and the worker class because, again, that's what happens when you go for what's real. You don't have an agenda. You're just trying to explore what the reality of the situation is. And then people laugh because they're like, well, yeah, it really is that absurd and ridiculous and self-defeating. And they see themselves in it. Yeah, I always think about in cartoons, sitcoms, New Dollarty, you got the character who is very uneducated or unintelligent, but they say things that are so poignant and wise, right? They have a moment of clarity that cuts to the human condition. And that's the part of it. They're not smart. They're not intelligent necessarily, but that character is still at the top of their wisdom intelligence or, or life intelligence or whatever. Right. So this is why we called this episode Improv for Content Creation. So my advice, if you have some ideas out there, especially if it's straight to camera, talking to straight to camera kind of stuff, turn on your camera, have it situated in place, have your list full of ideas there and just improvise. Look straight at the camera lens, speak with 100% intelligence, tell the truth and just kind of talk through your real feelings and... This is how I create a lot of content. You will be surprised at the emotional depth and the humor and what will happen if you just get out there and start talking honestly, but you have to make a point to do it. And most importantly, if you're doing it for content creation, you actually have to turn on the camera and review that footage and see what do I actually have here. And if you watch it and it resonates with you as an audience member, it's going to resonate with other people. Yeah. And, one last thing for me is I tell my kids, as I used to always tell my students, this skill is like any other skill. Practice makes progress and progress is the goal. You know, there is no perfection, but as long as you are getting better, as long as you are progressing in some way or another, that's the best you can do. And you'll surprise yourself. Just like in improv scenes, sometimes the line you just throw off without thinking gets a huge laugh. It's the same thing with content. You know, mm-hmm. you make 20 videos, The one you put the most effort into is not necessarily the one your audience loves the best. And that's fine. What resonates with them is going to be whatever is real with them, whatever they identify with. You're never going to know unless you go out there and start doing stuff. So, uh, Jared, I love having you on the show. We could talk about this forever. We usually do. Where can we find you on Twitter? For sure. Find me on Twitter at Jared E. Mason. Simple as that. And all my links are up there. My itch link for my games is up there. My writing portfolio is up there. And again, those are all on my LinkedIn profile as well. Feel free to connect with me. Uh, send me invites or whatever they call them. on. Hit the button and I'll I'll say, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll be your connection. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> connect with Jared. Connect with me if you're not connected yet. Reminder, if you want to stay updated every day with new content, don't forget to ring the bell. I'm your host, Chris Bogue. You can purchase my new course at chrisbogue.io. Use the promo code Gimme Gimme, G-I-M-M-E, G-I-M-M-E, for $50 off your purchase. 
And stay tuned because I have a new ad for it coming out tomorrow with Vague Men. And I don't know if Justin Welsh is going to like it, but he's in it. So <laughs> thank you very much. Everybody give it up for Jared Mason. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for having me, Chris.